All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead Church, and welcome to our grand opening. Uh, we have worked and waited and labored, and here it is. <laughs> uh, so welcome. I'm glad you guys are here to help us celebrate and to kick off a new sermon series. I do want to invite you back at 1230 today. Um, we're going to be cooking up some good food, and uh, we will have multiple bounce houses um, for the littles and for the bigs, uh, so that so the little kids and the big kids can have some fun. And uh, we'll have some bag games, and, and really, it's just a great chance to hang out. Um, so if, if, you're, if you're new here, um, or, or maybe not incredibly socially bold, this is a perfect opportunity. Just come and hang out. Have some fun. Um, it's going to be non-threatening conversations. Nobody's going to get all weird on you, okay? Um, it's really just about having some fun. And so we would encourage you to come back at 1230 uh, as, we, as we have a, a great party. It really has been years years of dreaming and praying and working um, for us to get into this space and to be able to celebrate this morning. And God has gone ahead of us. God has, has prospered our work. He has opened the doors. He has been the wind um, that filled our sails and allowed us to not just work, but to work and, ha- and make progress. And, and so, we thank Him, and, and we, of course, thank the many who have partnered with us in this process. Many of you have sacrificed to help make this possible. This room is filled with people who, who donated uh, financially their time and, and, and their talent and their treasure. They invested, they sacrificed, because they saw that, that what they were investing in was greater than um, what they would have invested in otherwise. So thank you. Thank you for your sacrifice. Because it was an investment into this community and into this community, our church, our ability for generations to be able to share the gospel, to share the love of God with the people around us for generations to come. So thank you for coming out and celebrating with us. Grab your Bibles. We're going to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to page 982 if you're using one of our Bibles. They are distributed around the room in in the chairs in front of you. So if you don't have one, no problem. Just grab one off the chair. If you don't own a Bible... Feel free to take that one with you. We're, we're glad to make that our gift to you uh, so that you can continue to read and study over the course of the week. We are starting a new sermon series this morning called Unshaken, and we're going to spend the next six weeks digging in to this passage. And some of you are like, seriously? You're going to spend six weeks in like six verses? Yes. Welcome to Trailhead. <laughs> this is how we do it, right? This is how we do it. I would much rather... Uh, dive deep, right, into a single passage, then skip across the surface of a dozen. I think there's so much richness here, so much life for us, that we're going to spend some time and really dig in. So Philippians chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 4, and we're going to read through verse 9, starting in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace 
will be with you. The word of the Lord. Today is the 15-year anniversary of 9-11. Do you guys remember where you were 15 years ago this morning? Some of you are like, uh, no, I was like three years old. Okay, I get it. Um, you, many of you grew up in a post-9-11 world. Uh, but if, you were, if, you were, if you're this morning older than 25, I, I bet you remember where you were 15 years ago. I doubt you remember very many other things that happened 15 years ago, but you remember where you were this morning. I was at my school. Uh, I was in my previous life. I was an administrator, and, and, and I was out by the, the curb um, greeting parents as they dropped off the kids. And, and I remember one of the parents um, leaning over in the car and being like, Hey, Steve, um, did you hear... Um, one, a plane flew into one of the Twin Towers. And I, got a, I, I didn't even know what the Twin Towers were. I'd never been to New York. I, I was like, are you talking about the Lord of the Rings? And they're like, no, no, like literally in New York, there are Twin Towers in a plane. And in my head, I, I remember thinking, I'm like, oh, like a little Cessna, like a little prop plane, you know, just a hobbyist must have, right, man, that's bad news. That's really bad. I'm sure that'll be in the news for a little while. And I'm like, okay, thanks, man, thanks. And I just kept greeting people. And, and after a little while, another parent pulled up and leaned over and like, Mr. Mizell, you, you really need to go turn on the TV. There's something important happening, and, and you need to go pay attention. And so I went in, turned on the TV, and, and watched as the plane hit the second tower. And then a little while later, as the towers crumbled, I'll never forget that morning, nor that day at school, as parents were calling throughout the day. Should we pick up our kids? Should we pick up our kids? And I'm like, I think they're probably safest if they're, let's just go through our day. But none of us knew, right? The anxiety as we went through that day, are there more planes in the air? Are there more things going to happen? The anxiety was real and powerful. Our sense of security had been shaken in a new way that morning that challenged us and changed us. But here's the thing, you guys, the reality is that that we were an anxious people before this ever happened. Some of you don't remember that far back, but it is true. Here's the thing, you guys, let's admit it, we love anxiety. Anxiety is as American as baseball and apple pie. Psychologist Richard Leahy says this, the average high school kid today has the same level of anxiety as the average psychiatric patient in the early 1950s. And he wasn't being hyperbolic. He, he is talking about actual levels of anxiety. Taylor Clark, who is a social researcher and author, said this, Over the last several decades, both through good economic times and bad, the United States has transformed into the planet's undisputed worry champion. Around the turn of the millennium, anxiety flew past depression as the most prominent mental health issue in America, and it's never looked back. With more than 18% of adults suffering from an anxiety disorder in any given year, the United States is now the most anxious nation in the world, according to the National Institute for Mental Health. 9-11 was tragic, but it isn't what started our obsession with anxiety. And right now, our culture is again being shaken. I mean, it happens every election cycle. I've been around long enough that, that every, every election cycle, culture, everyone feels like things are melting down. But, but there is something unique about this election cycle. This one seems to be particularly nasty. Things are being 
shaken. And some things that are shaking are bad, right? As the evil in this world seeks to increase its unrest, as we see evil people doing evil things, heinous things that are hard to even imagine, there is a shaking. Some of the shaking that's taking place is is hard but necessary and even good. When systems of injustice or racism or abuse get shaken, it doesn't make us comfortable. But it is good. But here's the thing, good or bad, in the end, we're all left feeling more insecure. We're all feeling more vulnerable. We're all feeling more defensive. We're just tense. We're afraid. We're anxious. So what does a text that was written 2,000 years ago have to say to us today? Seriously, a text that was written by a Middle Eastern man to an ancient culture. Can it really speak into the cultural dynamics, the heart dynamics of the modern American people and our struggle with all the things that are going on in our culture? Here's the thing, you guys, I think it has a lot to say because human anxiety is nothing new. Our cultural experience of it is, but the experience itself is not, and God's way of dealing with it transcends time and culture. So in the heart of our text, there is a crazy command. Take a look at verse 6. Verse 6, because I want you to see it. Do not be anxious about anything. All right, think about that for a minute. How are you doing with that command? Right? Do not be anxious about what? About what? Are you, are you letting that sink in for a minute? The command says, do not be anxious about anything. The news. The economy. The election. Your family. Chicago. Aleppo. Nigeria. Issues of gender, race, and sex, and the cultural shifts that are taking place around them. The upcoming school year. Do not be anxious about what? Anything. It doesn't say don't do anything about these things, it says it's not saying don't be involved. Don't respond, don't be proactive, don't act. It's not saying that, it's saying don't be anxious about these things. But anxiety is the easiest thing to do, isn't it? Right? Doing productive things is hard. Being anxious is easy, right? Anxiety just comes naturally. It is our natural heart response when things are unsettled. It is our natural heart response when things are being shaken. Do not be anxious about anything. So the Apostle Paul in all of his wisdom simply commands us, stop it. That's pretty wise. Just stop it, right? I mean, is Paul crazy? Can this really be representative of ancient wisdom, right? Seriously, have, have you ever tried to simply command your anxiety to go away? How'd that work for you? Right? You're starting to feel tense. You're starting, just stop it. 
to your heart. Calm down. How's that, how's that work for you? You get all stressed out. You're like, hey, heart, cool it, man. Even better, have you ever had your spouse or your partner help you out with commanding your anxiety? How'd that go? Right? Hey, baby. Oh, you're stressed. Why don't you chill out, man? Just relax. How'd that go? That helps situation? Everybody at ease now, right? You were like, oh, man, that's exactly what I needed to hear. Thank you. Right? <laughs> All right, here you guys. When we command our anxiety, it's like adding Mentos to Coke. It only makes it explosive. It increases our anxiety. When you try to command anxiety, you're trying to control something you can't control. You're trying to force something that can't be forced, which increases your anxiety. Because it increases your sense of being out of control. It increases your sense of, of, of things moving forward without your ability to guide them and control them. So seriously, what are we supposed to do with a command like this? The harder you try to obey it, the more anxious you'll become. Well, here's the thing, you guys. I'm fully convinced that God doesn't command us to do anything that he won't equip us to do. So if God commands us to do it, he must also equip us to do it. So here's the thing. This command doesn't stand alone in this passage. It is surrounded by powerful principles that help us actually obey it. Things that will help us find security in an insecure world. Now, some of them, as we go through this, are going to seem almost childish. One of the principles we're going to unpack is, is you need to give thanks. We're going to spend a whole week on that. It sounds very childish, but, but there's incredible power in gratitude. Incredible power that, that, that calms our hearts and transforms our experience as we move into gratitude, right? We're going to unpack principles that, that won't make sense. They'll seem counterintuitive, Right? We're going to talk about the need to not run away from people who think differently than you. To actually listen and engage people who challenge you. That that's actually important and necessary for you to defeat anxiety in your life. We're going to talk about digging into some things that, that honestly seem paradoxical on the surface. Right? The, the simple principle that you need to learn to win by losing. If you don't learn to win by losing, you will never be able to conquer the power of anxiety in your life. But there are underlying principles here that make sense of those things. So over the next six weeks, we're going to be taking a principle each week to unpack and understand how, how we can obey this command. Do not be anxious about anything. And we're going to see that this command is actually an invitation to a new kind of life that's radically free and powerful. Allowing us to be secure even in an insecure world. Allowing us to be stable even when things become unstable around us. This morning we're going to be dealing with the shortest sentence in the paragraph. It's found at the end of verse 5. Take a look. The end of verse 5. Simple little sentence that says... The Lord is at hand. And then he immediately goes in. Do not be anxious about anything. The Lord is at hand. Here's the thing. We're not going to be able to be free from anxiety until we learn to take shelter in our unshakable God. So 
at the end of verse 5, the Lord is at hand. Now, this is really two Greek words. Well, two Greek words on an article. Uh, Hokurios engus is the Greek for this. Hokurios engus, the, the Lord is near. All right, I'm going to teach you a little Greek this morning. I want you to say this after me. Hokurios engus. Try it again. Hokurios engus. You're like, Steve, stop, dude. I don't know how to roll my R's. Why are you making me speak gibberish anyway, right? I speak American. Well, then say it like American, right? Hokurios angus, right? Why am I making you speak Koine Greek? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Honestly, I guess it's because I absolutely love those words. There is so much power. So much meaning. And these words, from the first time I've read them, have spoken so powerfully to my soul that I love them. 28 years ago, when I first read them, I wrote those words on an index card, and I left them in my best friend's mailbox in college. And I'm fairly confident Lauren still has that card somewhere stashed away in one of her little boxes. Hokurios engus, the Lord is near. Why is this so powerful? What does it mean that the Lord is near? Because there's so much you need to hear when you're attacked with anxiety and worry and fear. Hokurios engus, the Lord is near. First of all, it calls him Lord, which is important. Hokurios engus. Hokurios. Kurios is the Greek word for, for Lord. Ho is the. It's the definitive article. The Lord is near, right? Now, we could call him God. He could say God is near. He could have called him Father, Son, or Holy Spirit, right? That great mystery of the Trinity. Three who's and one what, right? One God made up of three distinct and unique persons. A mystery that will break your brain the more you try to think about it, right? But, but he could have said the Father is near. Or he could have said Jesus is near. He could have said the Spirit is near. All three of those would have been true. And each one of those would have made a different meaning, right? A different emphasis. He could have said the Christ is near. And he would have been focusing on Jesus' mission to redeem and restore. But that's not what he said. He said the Lord is near. In using the title Lord, he is focusing on us on, on God as sovereign. God as king and ruler of the true and better kingdom. But not just a Lord, the Lord. The Lord, the maker of heaven and earth and the ruler of both. The Lord is near. He's not a million miles away, distracted and disinterested. He's not powerless or passive. He is near with power and authority. The Lord, Engus, is near. Elizabeth Barrett Browning wrote a little poem that I think captures this well. She said this, Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around it and pluck blackberries. Earth is crammed 
with heaven. And so you're like, well, of course, I've, I've studied my theology. Right? I, I know the concept of, of omnipresence, the idea that God is in all places at all times. Of course, he is near because he's everywhere, right? But here's the thing, we're, we're talking about something much more intimate than omnipresence. We're saying that God is near, not just here, because there's a difference. When we say God is near, what we're saying is, is that he is here with intimacy. He is here knowing me and seeing me. He's not simply present because he's in all places at all times. He is near me. And he sees me. This is why the psalmist could say in Psalm 34, verse 18, the Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. He's not simply saying that that God occupies the same space as the brokenhearted. Not simply physically closer to those who suffer. He's saying He meets them in their pain. He meets them uniquely in their suffering. They come to know Him in ways they never could without being pushed so far into their own helplessness as they taste their own need to a greater and greater degree, they experience the nearness of the Lord to a greater and greater degree. They discover that earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God. And they take off their shoes because they've now entered into the holy nearness of God. They see what they previously couldn't see. They experience what they previously couldn't experience. The nearness of God. Like, but Steve, I'm suffering. I'm in pain. I have anxiety. How do I know God is near? How do I experience the the nearness? How can I see him when I can't see him? How do I have that kind of faith? Well, here's the thing. I think what enables us to do this is realizing that God doesn't just draw near to us in an abstract way. God isn't an impersonal force that's lying dormant in the shadows, waiting for you to maybe stumble upon him. He is a person. He is the Lord of creation, and and he, the creator of all things, became part of his creation. Right? That's what God did. It's the heart of the gospel message. When God became man, he broke into our dark world to bring us light. He broke into our pain and our suffering to become the agent of of redemption and restoration. God became flesh, not to condemn us, but to redeem us. Not to judge us, but to be judged for us, that he might save us. See, Jesus is God drawn near to man. God drew near to our pain in Christ. He set aside his experience of uninterrupted glory and joy and harmony that he might step into our mess. 
that he might feel our pain, that he might bear our sin and become our substitute in judgment, paying the price we couldn't pay, taking our shame and our guilt so intimately into himself that he could fully satisfy God's holiness in regard to our faults. God drew near in Christ. That's why Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. He lived the life we should have lived and died the death we deserve to die so that as our substitute in death, he could then invite us in to be his partner in resurrection. So that when he rose, we might taste new life and have new hope. He drew near with one simple command. Trust me. I draw near to you so that you can draw near to me. Do the one thing that mankind has rejected doing since the beginning in the garden. Respond to me and my love with love. Respond to me with trust. Respond to me by drawing near as I draw near to you. The Lord is near. Hokurios engus. You guys, a God who put on flesh that he might take your sin, that he might die and rise again for you, is also a God who can meet you in your pain and bring comfort to your anxiety. He is a God that can be trusted with your suffering because he knows it intimately. He's no stranger to your reality. Hokurios engus is true for you right now. Whatever your experience, whatever you're feeling, whatever's going on, the Lord is near. But there's more to this little sentence than simply the experience, the personal experience of the nearness of God. It doesn't just mean that he's near to me. It does mean that right here and right now. But it also means that his return is near. One of the basic beliefs of Christianity is that after Jesus rose from the grave, he ascended bodily into heaven. And there will come a time when he will return bodily to earth. The resurrection of Jesus is not some metaphorical story. It's a historical reality. Jesus came out of the grave in a human body, and he will return. And when he does, he will return to reestablish the kingdom of heaven on earth. So that the shalom of God, the peace of God, can once again be at the heart of the human experience. His return is near. All these things that you're getting so worked up about, all these things that you're allowing to to come in and plague your heart and fray the edges of your soul, put them in perspective. Because the final act of the play is coming. The Lord is near. His return is at hand. Our time here is for a season. And believer in Christ, we are citizens of a higher country. We follow a king who demands a higher allegiance and will deliver us into a greater future. The Lord will return. And when he does, he will reestablish his kingdom on earth. And his peace and shalom will define us.
And because the Lord is near, He can be my refuge in times of shaking. He can be my security in an insecure world. I want us to close by considering how it's essential for us to see God as near if we're going to actually take refuge in Him. A couple of verses from the Psalms. Psalm 16.8 says, I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. Because He is at my right hand. Because He is near I shall not be shaken. Psalm 73, 28, But for me, it is good to be near God. For I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. I grew up in California, where earthquakes were normal. So, kind of like people in Oklahoma, I guess, get a little used to tornadoes. That seems absolutely baffling to me. Uh, in California, we kind of got used to earthquakes, right? As a little kid, I remember having earthquake drills in school, right? You, you learned um, what to do, right? And, and you would drill it because when an earthquake hits, man, it hits fast. And so you learned, you know, the duck and cover piece, right? Get under the, get under the table, right? And, and, and you learned where the structural strengths were in a, in a building to move there quickly if there was nothing to get under. I remember once when I was in high school, this was in San Diego, um, an earthquake hit in the middle of the night, and the shaking came suddenly and violently. Uh, I woke up as things were falling off my wall. And in that moment, there's not a lot of time to think. <laughs> there's only time to react. And, and, and I jumped up in my gym shorts, and, and I ran to my doorway, and, and the whole place is, is shaking. And the older guy I lived with came running out of his room in his skivvies, just, Everybody downstairs! Everybody downstairs! Running down the steps. I didn't follow him, partly because I didn't want to see him, but partly because I knew standing in my doorway, I had been trained that when you stand in the doorway, the doorway is one of the most structurally strong places in a building. It's completely reinforced, and so if you can't find shelter, you move to a doorway, because if a building were to go down, that's the last thing to go. That, that is going to provide you a certain measure of protection. So I stayed there. Here's the thing. All those earthquake drills had shaped my instincts. I I didn't have a lot of time to think. I didn't have a lot of time to process and make choices. I had to act. Because when the shaking starts, man, you don't have a lot of time to sit back and go, huh, I wonder what I should do. Well, there's option A and option B and option C. I mean, when the shaking starts, you act. When the anxiety sets in, you go the direction you've trained your heart to go. Here's the thing, we all do that. When the anxiety hits, we run to what is near and what we think will protect us. It doesn't matter if it'll protect us if it's not near, and it doesn't matter if it's near if if we don't think it'll protect us. So let me ask you, what do you run to when the shaking hits? When the unexpected anxiety breaks into your life, when it wakes you up in the middle of the night and things are falling off the wall, when when something happens in your life suddenly and unexpectedly and and it knocks you off course, it, it, it wakes you up, where do you run? What do you see as near and secure? There are a lot of false shelters out there. 
a lot of things that we run to because they're close, but they don't really provide protection. Places that promise security and peace, but they can't deliver on their promises. If your hope's in politics, if your hope is in getting the right person elected, making sure the right social or economic agenda prevails, if your hope is in some certain social cause or agenda, Christian, if your hope is in a specific set of doctrines, you're going to be let down. Because your political party is going to let you down. Your 401k, it's, going to, it's not going to last. Your beauty, your strength, they're going to fade. Your intelligence will find its limit. Your strength will fail. See, the psalmist says, because the Lord is at my right hand, near, near, because the Lord is at my right hand, he had trained himself to see the nearness of God. He had trained himself on a daily basis to remind himself of the nearness of God. Because we don't see God. I don't see him near me. I have to continually remind myself of the truth of his nearness. And the reality is, one of the greatest enemies to that are when things are going well. When I'm not anxious, because it's in those times, I start feeling very self-sufficient. It's in those times I forget that I'm vulnerable. It's in those times I start thinking, I really do have this together. I can depend on myself. I don't need anyone or anything. And I train my heart to self-sufficiency. And when the crisis comes and my self-sufficiency is insufficient, it creates a crisis of anxiety. Because I am not up to the task. Because I can't be God. The nearness of God. Because the Lord is at my right hand, because He is near, I will not be shaken. Because He is near, He is my refuge. All right, let me ask you this. How can you find a more powerful refuge? than the nearness of God. Right? It is a shelter that can protect you in the outpouring and the shaking of anxiety. It's founded on the bedrock of God's love for you. Think about that for a minute. The foundation of God's nearness. What makes this so secure is that His nearness isn't dependent on your love for Him. It's dependent on His love for you. It's not dependent on your performance for God. It's dependent on how He has performed for you. God drew near that you might draw near. He preemptively loved you. There is a bedrock, a granite foundation that allows you to move close. Even if you've failed. Even if you've screwed up. Even if someone has failed you. Even if all the things you thought were unshakable have been shaken, all, even if all the things you thought were secure are insecure, the nearness of God hasn't been shaken because the foundation is the bedrock of God's character. He is a God merciful with everlasting love. The foundation of that shelter is God's love for you. 
It offers security that nothing else can. And when God loves you, not only does it give you a firm foundation, it gives you a firm covering. Because as things shake, often things will fall. And I'm not saying things won't fall in your life. I'm not saying that that there won't be trouble. I'm not saying that things at times won't fall apart or go wrong. They will. All you've got to do is read the Bible to realize that is, in fact, the normal experience of the Christian life. No one is promising you a life free from suffering or shaking. What we are promising you is security. That you have a God who can redeem and restore the suffering, even when you're the one who caused it. A God who can redeem and restore the suffering, even when you were the victim of it. A God who can redeem and restore the suffering, even if you don't understand it. Because there's a foundation of love and a covering of love. When the Lord God, creator of all things, looks at you and says to you, I've got this. Come and rest in me. That's security. When Lord God says, you may not understand the things that are being shaken or where they're going, but you can trust me. That's security. When Jesus, who rose from the dead, has already defeated death, looks at you and says, the worst thing that can be done to you is not the worst thing. Because my blessing is greater than your suffering and where I'm taking you is greater than where you've been. That's security. O curios angus. The Lord is near. The Lord is drawn near. Will you draw near to Him? Will you let down your guard? Will you humble your pride? Will you stop fighting for your own kingdom, to establish your own name, to protect your own reputation? Will you come in humility and allow Him to be what He is? The Lord? And in that sovereignty, will you allow him to fight for you because he's near? Will you trust him? Will you believe his heart? He's shown you it. He's already given you Christ. And in giving you Christ, he's given you all things. And in stepping out of his comfort to draw near to you in your pain and your suffering to take your place in judgment, he invites you into a new and radically free way of living. It's the way of humility. It's the way of being forgiven. It's the way of of, of no longer building your own reputation or resting on your own record, but resting in His. Will you draw near to Him? Will you leave your false shelters and come to Him? Will you leave your pride and your fear and just be loved? The Lord is near. We're going to move into a time of response. We're going to create some space for you to pray and allow God to encourage and speak to your heart. We're going to share communion together in a moment. Don't worry, we'll explain how we do that here. If if you're new, I'm not going to put you in a weird situation. But just take a few moments and and pray. Allow the Spirit of God to speak to your heart. Respond to the questions on the screen or, or if the Spirit's already prompting you. Man, just sit in that. Let me pray for us as we move into our time of response. Father, we thank you that you've drawn near to us.
That you weren't offended by our sin, you were not put off by our pride, you were not alienated by the lies we told ourselves about you and about ourselves. You drew near, and in drawing near, you invite us to draw near. Spirit, I pray that you'll prompt our hearts in ways that uh, are inexplicable. Now, we don't, we don't just need a rearranging of the furniture of our lives. We need resurrection. Spirit, you're the only one that can do that. Spirit, I pray that you will come in and awaken our hearts to our need and fill our vision with the beauty of Christ. That we will hear the invitation of love so clearly, so powerfully, that we can't help but respond by loving you in return. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.